Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you for the, um, the fellowship of the spirit that we enjoy with one another here this morning. We pray that you would bless our time together. Help us to grow closer together. Help us to draw near to you in all the things that we do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, as you can see by the title slide, uh, the title of the sermon is The Ark of the Covenant. We're going to do the first uh, 11 verses of the book of Deuteronomy. You know, when I was young, my dad bought a life insurance policy and named my mother as his beneficiary and then just put it in a really safe place, his dresser drawer. As he grew older and as he got a little bit wiser, um, he cashed it in to buy a luncheonette. That was a really big insurance policy. Yeah, well, it only paid part of it. He thought it would be worth more in the end and provide an ongoing means of income for his family. And he built it into a successful business and taught my brothers and me how to run it. And that became our inheritance. Now, my dad didn't leave a will. So when he died, we went through a year of probate and legal hassles until we finally had possession of that business, of our inheritance. So Lynn and I took a slightly different route we created a living trust. That's where everything of value that we own is placed into a trust. And the beneficiaries, our kids, are its named trustees. And by the way, so are Lynn and I. Uh, we all own all of the trust. We are heirs and co-heirs together. If any one of us dies, the next in line in succession has already uh, been made the owner of all that stuff. They already have the ownership of the assets of the trust, so there's no probate to be involved with. Well, as you know, the government always likes to take its cut. It's an estate and has an executor of the state who holds it in trust for the other folks who are the beneficiaries. We're all trained in how the succession works, and we keep the legal documents, the covenant agreement, in a safe place. No, not the dresser drawer. Shoebox in the closet. Yeah. <clears throat> so, God, too, has graciously created a living trust for his people. A covenant agreement. He declared it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he recorded the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. They were written in stone. Yes, that's where that phrase comes from. Written in stone. Afterwards, he gave us his written word, the scriptures. He appointed executors of the estate. First, there was a high priest named Aaron. And later, various prophets, priests, and kings. And in the fullness of time, as we've been singing about this morning, he appointed Christ. He sent his only begotten son into the world to be our savior and our eternal prophet, priest, and king. The father is putting all things under Jesus Christ, even as we sit here this morning. Under that covenant, held in trust in Christ and by Christ, we are co-heirs of his estate, but also its trustees. That's kind of strange, isn't it? But that's kind of like that living trust that I created. God put that covenant in a safe place. First, he put it in a portable ark, but then he permanently kept it in Christ himself, to whom we are united by faith. And so we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, standing on the covenant of God alone, to the glory of God, eternally alone. And thus endeth the lesson. Let's get to the food. <laughs> Only kidding. So today we're continuing our journey through Deuteronomy. As uh, you heard the first week, it's an overview of the five books of Moses. So it's missing some of the detail that we find in some of the other books. 
Today we're looking at chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, as I said. If there's a theme to it, it's the Ark of the Covenant, the safety deposit box where the written covenant was first stored. Please open your Bibles to chapter 10 if you haven't already. Deuteronomy 10, 1. I'm going to pull a Kurt Eichley on us here. At that time. Okay, let's stop there. <laughs> let's take a moment to ponder those three words at that time. What time is that? So as we learned last week, it's the time at which the people rebelled against God by worshiping a golden calf of their own making, crafted by Moses' own brother Aaron. It's the time at which Moses lost his temper and threw down the tablets with the Ten Commandments, shattering them. It's the time at which God judged his people. Some 3,000 kinsmen fell by the sword of the faithful Levites that day. It's the time at which God threatened to destroy all of them and to raise up a new people for himself from the loins of Moses, offering a new covenant with Moses to make him into a nation mightier than they. It's also the time at which Moses prostrated himself before the Lord and interceded for this stiff-necked people, as Christ would later intercede for all his people, for us here, for you and for me, saving them from destruction. The shattered tablets contained the covenant law. What did they contain? It reflected the grace of God. The Ten Commandments reflected the grace of God extended to his people for their good and for his own glory. These Ten Commandments identified God as their God. Thank you for Jeremiah 31 this morning. Perfect. It identified them as his people forever if they would only ratify the covenant of grace by obeying its statutes and its rules. Simple enough. They were the hallmarks. They were the hallmarks, these rules. They weren't conditions of salvation. They weren't a means to earn that salvation. They were the hallmarks of their relationship with God. Distinctives of their relationship with God, our own relationship with God. Obedience is what marks us as God's treasured possession. Obedience is what marks us as God's treasured possession. It shows that we bear His name and that we are blessed. And by the way, we are blessed by obeying. Remember that sermon a few weeks ago? Be careful to do, so that you might be blessed. Maybe you think the law defines your relationship with God. It doesn't. No. uh Obedience to the law gives you a way to receive God's love for you. And it's a way to express your love for Him. The law is a sign of the covenant, and that makes it a very precious possession. It's not an unwelcome burden. It's not the condition of God's love. It's the proof of His grace. I put that on your handouts just so you'd have that written down for you. God would not let the law pass away until it was fulfilled in Christ. These two tablets foretell the need of a Savior. Why? To redeem His people from the penalty of the law. So that they might obey it in liberty. In liberty and not in fear. The law is a testament of His undying love for us even at the moment of His death. It was a testimony. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in Thee. So let's continue. Verse 1, at that time, the Lord said to me, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and, and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke and you shall put them in the ark. 
Maybe you think God is forcing Moses to carve out two replacement tablets as some sort of penance for shattering the first two. Or maybe he's going to impose the law on us whether we like it or not. He wasn't doing either of those things. God was not doing either of those two things. It was God's way of saying, look, 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 come close, draw near. Only the tablets were broken, not the covenant. Only the tablets were broken, not the covenant. Not a word of it was changed. Write down exactly the things that I gave you last time. I'm not going to change a word of it. There's nothing you can do that will separate you from my love nor end my covenant with you. That was God's statement in calling Moses up to make a second set. And the ark was a statement that God will preserve the law which identifies and preserves his people. God is going to preserve those two tablets. Noah's ark, built with his own hands, preserved those eight souls through the cleansing flood brought by God. And just as God set them safely upon land again, God will preserve his remnant from destruction, these Israelis who had so rebelled against him, through the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ sent by God to save his people. And we sing about this every now and then. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood. Just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Ah. And how did Moses react? Well, he immediately obeyed the word of God. It says that. Verse 3. So I made an ark, of a case you would, and cut two tablets of stone like the first, and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand, and he, God, wrote on the tablets, in the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire, on the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. For what? Verse 5. And then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are, probably pointing to the ark. As the Lord commanded me. As he commanded, so I did. Gee, that's like obeying the terms of the covenant. God wrote the law. Moses did not write the law. Moses was a lawgiver in a sense of passing on, of, of, di of distributing or, or presenting to the people of God the law of God, but God wrote the law. It wasn't Moses or any other men that wrote the law. The covenant that it represented was permanent. But the ark that housed it and the tabernacle that covered it were temporary provisions. Temporary provisions. Under Solomon, a glorious temple would be built. The renown of the world. Really cool looking place. But it was still a temporary provision. These were earthly signs of eternal truths. Kind of like baptisms that we have coming up. Earthly signs of eternal truths. The one would be swept away, but the other is an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for each of you here this morning. Like the tabernacle of old, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, a tent of meeting, in a way. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 6.19. It's a fragile tent. Some of us know that better than some of the others. It's a fragile tent. But we know, it says in Scripture, we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Heaven and earth may pass away, he said, but not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Is that for me? Isaiah foretold the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, and yet he also prophesied the following. 
Look upon Zion. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. For the Lord, the Lord is our judge. The Lord, the Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. And when Jesus was named, what was Mary told? You shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people. And he's speaking of Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. And therefore, James tells us there's one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Here in Deuteronomy, it's clear that God gave the law to Moses to give to us. Why? So that we would make it our precious possession. And of course, there's a question every week when we preach. Is it in fact your precious possession? Does it fill your prayers? Does it fill your mind? Does it fill your heart? Does it fill you with hope? Is God's word precious to you? Moses put it securely in the ark, which was covered by the mercy seat. And when the tabernacle was set up, the ark was kept in the Holy of Holies as a sign and a seal of the covenant between God and his people, us. The ark itself was a precious, beautiful, holy furnishing. And it was placed in the tabernacle. Moses gives us a lengthy description of it in Exodus 25. I'm going to read the whole shebang. Why? Well, because Deuteronomy is only a summary and you know some of the details are left. So we're going to give you some of the details. Notice the detail and the images of heavenly things in what would otherwise be just a fancy box. Exodus 25.10 They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth. And a cubit and a half its height. Big disagreement over how long a, a cubit is. So I'm going to give you my take on it. This was this ark was long enough, large enough to hold Aaron's budded staff. So I think it's at least six feet long. And that makes this cubit about a yard. Nose to fingertip, as Lynn likes to say. That's some sort of British thing for their tailors. Verse 11, you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside shall you overlay it and you shall make it on a molding of gold around it and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. Nobody was to touch the ark. You could grab it by the poles but you could not touch the ark. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. Don't go storing them in a closet someplace. They get lost. They shall not be taken from it. Verse 17, you shall make it, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold on the two ends of the mercy seat of one piece with the mercy seat. Now this may allude to the two cherubim who guarded the entrance to the garden of Eden with flaming swords. Remember that? That wasn't to keep them out. They were protecting the way back until Christ would open wide the gates of heaven for his people. Ah, those two cherubim. Verse 20, the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony, the testimony, the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments on stone that I shall give you 
Verse 22, there I will meet with you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Wow. Beautiful, isn't it? Now, this is an artist's rendering of it. That's, we have no idea what it actually looked like, but I thought it was pretty cool. So, yeah, you're going to look at that all morning long. It's symbolic of many heavenly things, but especially that God will preserve his word for us. He puts it in a safe place. He keeps his covenant promises safely tucked away, not in a pretty wooden box, but in the heavenlies, with Christ as executor of the estate. He ensures that every beneficiary will receive the promised inheritance. Christ is our guarantor of all that has been promised, of all that is going to come. Christ is our guarantor. Now what we see next in Deuteronomy, verses 6 through 9, is set in parentheses. Was that in the original? I don't know if they had parentheses in Hebrew. But in our English translations, we put that sucker into, into parentheses. This indicates it's no longer Moses speaking. But a narrator inserts some historical background for us. Just trying to do us a favor, bringing in some stuff from those other books so we know what's going on. He provides the evidence of God's gracious answer to Moses' prayers and of God's reconciliation to his people, despite their great provocation. Now that's evidence of God's grace, and of God's mercy, and of God's faithfulness to his people. Verse 6, the people of Israel journeyed from Berath, Benijakan, to Moserah. There Aaron died, and there he was buried. And his son Eleazar ministered as priest in his place. And from there they journeyed to Gudgadah, and from Gudgadah to Jabatha, a land with brooks of water. So Aaron is dead and buried. Aaron's son Eleazar succeeds to the priesthood, executor of the estate, keeper of the ark and of the tablets. One generation is passing away and another is rising up. Boy, that's just like life, isn't it? Some of us get old and decrepit, you know, and at some point we've got to step aside let the youngsters in. And so God has made provision for that. He's providing for a peaceful transition of power and of authority. Verse 8, at that time, that is at the time the law was given, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to do what? To minister to him and to bless in his name to this day. Verse 9, therefore Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance. As the Lord your God said to him. End parentheses. Now, all of us can say that the Lord is our inheritance. All of them could say that the Lord was their inheritance. So, how was Levi's inheritance any different than theirs? I'm glad you asked. John Gill explains it this way. Old dead guy. 1700s. In the division of the land of Canaan, because he was separated to the service of the sanctuary, Levi had no leisure to plow and sow. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. He had no time off to go out and work. <laughs> For the Lord is his inheritance in a temporal sense, in a real day-to-day -day temporal sense. His provision for the Levites' maintenance was made by tithes. In other words, the contributions made to the general fund, which were the Lord's. Those were the Lord's. And the Lord said, but out of that, take and provide for Levi and his sons. God made provision for Levi out of the tithe so he and his sons might devote themselves to labor in the temple. Ah, 
Now Moses speaks again at verse 10. The law has been given and placed in the ark. Moses now returns to the mount in prayer. Why? To intercede for his people and to receive the Lord's commandment. God hears and answers Moses' prayer on behalf of his people. That's what that little insert was about. Verse 10. I myself, says Moses, stayed on the mountain as at the first time. Forty days and forty nights. And the Lord listened to me that time also. Ah. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. That was not his desire at all. He had no desire to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise, arise, go on your journey at the head of the people. Why? So that they may go on in to the promised land and possess that land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Now, over 20 times in the book of Deuteronomy so far, God has commanded his people to obey his statutes and rules. 20 times. And the reason for their obedience is so that they may possess the land which he swore to their fathers that he would give to them. They got to do it. He promised it, but they got to do it. And their descendants after them. It's not just for them. It's not just for this generation that we're in. It's for the generations which follow us. Take that to heart. What we do here this morning is not just for us here this morning. It's for all the generations who will follow us. We proclaim the word of God for the generations to come. For ourselves, yes, but also for the generations to come. Here God instructs Moses to take his place at the head of the people. Why is that? Because without a shepherd, <laughs> the sheep get scattered. Without a shepherd, the sheep get scattered. They will fail to possess the land. So God provides for that too. Consider that Jesus is our eternal shepherd at our head. Again, God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, Ephesians 1.22. If we would take possession of what God swore to our fathers to give to us, then we must submit to the terms of the covenant as well and submit to the one who holds it in trust for us. Oh, so the whole purpose of this is so we can take possession of the land. So obedience really has nothing to do with trying to qualify for something. No, no, it's a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. God will repeat this command 20 more times in the book of Deuteronomy before the book ends. Now, I think the reason for this emphasis will become evident if we see the covenant, that covenant, that word of God, the scripture of God, in all its beauty and in all its depth and in all its breadth. You need to understand what you have your hands on. Electronic or paper. You know, you need to understand what you have your hands on. The gospel of salvation is revealed in Genesis and increasingly revealed all the way to the book of Revelation. The good news is that what we share when we evangelize is only part, it's only a portion of the whole. We call it the Evangelion. It's a subset of the whole. But the covenant is recorded in its entirety in the scriptures. All of the scriptures are the covenant. Every jot and tittle are part of the covenant. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is life-giving, sustaining us in every moment in this life. How valuable is that to you? To sustain you in every breath that you take. And therefore we can say covenant and scriptures in the same breath. There is no part of the scriptures that is incidental or irrelevant to the gospel or separated from the covenant that God has made with his people. All of it is one thing. One thing. Genesis to Revelation. One thing. 
All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. You should be familiar with that verse. But why? Why is it useful? So that the man of God, all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, both male and female, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The purpose of God's Word is to equip you for the labor. In the same way that Levi was <clears throat> put on vacation so he could go to work <laughs> and, and, and put to work so he wouldn't have to take a vacation in the field sowing and reaping. In the same way, God has given you His Word that you might work with His Word, that you might labor in His Word, that you might be equipped to labor in His fields. In His fields. And therefore, we must be careful to observe the commandments of God. For the Scriptures reveal the will of God, but also the love of God for His people. Does God love me? What does it say? How do you read it? Well, it sounds like you beat me up all the time. No. <laughs> only when you're disobedient. What does it say? What does it say? And that's only to correct you in love. It's not to punish you. It's to correct you in love. What does it say? It says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. It ain't going to quit. There's no day that's going to come to an end. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Count on it. We are his treasured possessions, the ones for whom Christ laid down his life. And he did that while we were still sinners to redeem us from the pit. And so we say that the scriptures are perfect. They're perfect. They're flawless. They're complete. John Gill said, the scriptures relate all things necessary to salvation. Everything that ought to be believed and done. They are complete, perfect standard of faith and practice. They are a complete perfect standard of faith and of practice. Things to believe, things to do. Things to believe and things to do. And that's what makes them precious to us. So we store the scriptures in our heart like putting the testimony in the ark. We store the scriptures in our heart. Are you storing the scriptures in your heart the way David did? I've treasured them, Lord. I've kept them in my heart. But what are the scriptures and what, why does God tell us to tremble at his word? Is it out of fear? <laughs> no, it's out of awe. Did you ever tremble in awe? You know, and you look at something and you go, man, I can't even wrap my head around that. And you tremble in awe. What I'm about to share is nothing new, I hope. These are simple things. They're not on your handout because you should all know these things. I'm going to go through them anyway because they're worth recalling. First, about the scriptures. Why? What are they? First, God is their author. God is their author. These are God's words given by inspiration of God, it says. And since God is their author and he is a perfect being in whom there is no darkness at all, nothing of ignorance, nothing of error, nothing of imperfection are in them. The scriptures which come from him are free from those as well. He is that and therefore his word is that. He is the rock and his work is perfect. And the scriptures are his work. And therefore they too are perfect. Reflections and revelations of the Lord our God who we worship. Secondly, they're a testament. Both the Old and New Testaments. Hebrews 9 describes it as a will or as a testament. When we write a will it says we're writing down our will and our directions concerning how our estate is to be disposed of. So if you go to Galatians 3.15, it says, you know, the testament has to be confirmed. You've got to have witnesses. 
when you have a will. Oh, you can sign your name on it, but you've got to have witnesses to the will. It's got to be certified. It has to be confirmed to ensure our loved ones receive their inheritance. To ensure that our loved ones receive their inheritance, that's what Christ was doing, confirming the covenant through his very death, sealing it with his own blood, writing it in his own blood, that it was a guarantee of the inheritance that we are going to receive. Well, the scriptures contain the whole will of God about the disposition of his blessings and of his grace and of the heavenly inheritance. He's bestowing these things on the ones he appointed to be the heirs, the ones he appointed to be the heirs, every believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's ratified and it's confirmed by the blood of Jesus Christ. These things are so sure and they are so firm that they cannot be annulled. There's no erasing them. There's no short-circuiting. There's no going down. Mistake? No, no mistakes here. They're so perfect that nothing can be added to them. And Scripture says that on several occasions. Add nothing to this. Why not? It's perfect in itself. There's nothing to be added. Thirdly, God's law is perfect. As it says in Psalm 19.7, this doesn't refer only to the Ten Commandments, but to the entire doctrine of God. That's what the phrase means. It includes what was delivered in the sacred writings in the days of David, who wrote Psalm 19. And if it was perfect then, as to its substance, you'll never guess, it displays its perfection even more by the addition of the prophets and by the addition of the New Testament. They provide us with plainer and clearer revelations of the mind and of the will of God. The Old Testament points to the new, the new fulfills the old. The old suggests in shadows, the new fulfills with clarity. Fourthly, they are both the law and the gospel, not just one or the other. They are both the law and the gospel. So often we forget this. There are two pillars to your salvation. One pillar, one pillar is your justification. That's entirely of God. He does all of that. He's the one that brings you to himself. No one is saved by the will of man, but only by the will of God. The second is your sanctification, and that's, you never guess, participation. <laughs> it's an exercise in participation. You get to join with cooperate with, coordinate with the Holy Spirit in your sanctification. Both of those are necessary to your salvation. Justification entirely of God, sanctification by the grace of God, just like justification is, and yet a necessary component. Why? Because faith without works is dead. The law is a perfect rule of our duty. It contains what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. It says that in Romans 12 too. It's what God would have us do or not do. The whole duty of man towards God and man. All of it hangs on these two very familiar commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Words of Jesus Christ. James says the gospel is the perfect law or doctrine of liberty. James 1.25. It proclaims the, the liberty of the children of God by Christ. Where is your liberty found? Not in the law of itself, by Christ who fulfilled the law on your behalf. That's why you can obey in liberty and in freedom and in joy. And it's perfect. It speaks of perfect things and of perfect justification by Christ, of full pardon of sin through his blood and complete salvation in him. Complete. Nothing left out. Nothing to be added to it. Christ plus, by definition, is not Christianity. It's Christ alone or it's nothing. It's a foreign religion. It's another religion. It's another gospel. Christ alone. 
It contains a perfect plan of truth, of every truth. As it is in Jesus, it says in Ephesians 4.21. As it is in Jesus, it resides in Him. He's the ark in which it has been placed. He's our security. He's the provision. He's the protector. He's the provider. He's the preserver of the Word of God and of the covenant of God with His people. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of those were in Christ. Paul says it's the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God concerning what? Salvation. Acts 20, 27. Peter says it has everything we need for life and godliness. What else do you need? Nothing. Why? Because it's everything you need for life and godliness. So how important is it? Must be pretty important. Yeah, because it's got everything I need for life and godliness. Yes. Therefore, treasure it. Fifthly, all its parts are integrated and consistent. All its parts are integrated and consistent. The scriptures contain all the books that were written by divine inspiration. But what about those other books? Those hidden books? Those forgotten books? Those? No, those are not the word of God. Anyway. <laughs> the scriptures contain all the books that were written by divine inspiration. The books of the Old Testament were complete and perfect in the times of Christ. Not one book was missing or corrupted. Christ said the Jews, quote, have Moses and the prophets, and, quote, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That was on the road to Emmaus, remember? Trying to explain to the two guys who are whining and moaning about his crucifixion, no, no, you missed the whole point. <laughs> so let me explain it to you and lays it out from Genesis to, to the current day when he was, when he came that all of those things were speaking of him all of those things were fulfilled by him all of those things are safe and secure in him Paul says the Jews had the oracles of God committed to their care and they faithfully kept them and they faithfully kept them there was uh, destruction of Masada 70 AD um, archaeologists had gone back there um, probably the 20th century and uh, moved aside the altar. And underneath the altar was a set of scriptures. And they said, whoa, we can date these to 70 AD. Not even the 4th century, man. We can go back to like 70 AD. You know, how close are they? Word for word for word for word for word. Whoa. Are the scriptures reliable? Yeah. So the Jews had not only had the five books of Moses, which Deuteronomy summarizes, but all the prophets and scriptures of the Old Testament. They had them all. Again, quote, Till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle shall in any way pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Matthew 5.18 Paul says the Jews had the oracles of God committed to their care. Romans 3.2 And they faithfully kept them. It's as if God preserved his covenant by placing it. He preserved his covenant by placing it in jars of clay. In jars of clay. It's funny, you know, when they went looking for uh, old scriptures and they, uh, they went into the, the hills and the caves around Jerusalem, they found in jars of clay the scriptures preserved for 2,000 years. Dead Sea Scrolls. Whoa! Yeah, yeah. But this is a different kind of jars of clay. We are jars of clay. And they've been placed in jars of clay. Us! And yet we are precious arcs. Each of us is a precious ark, a beautiful, holy box to store the Word of God. And He sets us in the Holy of Holies in His presence, doesn't He? Hasn't He called us into His presence this morning? 
Didn't we begin there this morning? We are in the presence of the Lord our God. We hold in our hands and our minds and in our hearts the Word of God, the covenant of God. A light shining in the darkness, it shines through us. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power of, belongs to God and not to us. There's nothing special about any one of us other than we are holders of the word of God, proclaimers of the word of God, heralds of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who then are we in Christ? Why can we stand firm in what was entrusted to us? How do we live under the covenant that we've stored up in our hearts so that we may possess the land that the Lord our God swore to our fathers to give to us? This is who we are and why we stand firm and how we live. And this was the meditation for our, our communion this morning. You, 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 you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How then should we respond to such loving kindness? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Rather, keep your conduct, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among those who are not believers yet, honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, oh, those Christians, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on that day of visitation. On that day when he judges the world, they will have no excuse. Did you not see my people? Yes. Did you not hear from my people? Yes. Were you not told the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. And you rejected it. I did. I did. On that day when he judges the world. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Okay. Let's review what we've learned about the testament, the ark, the executor, the estate, and our role as heirs and co-heirs. So here goes another hour. <laughs> what we're doing or not doing is less important than what Christ has done. What you and I are doing or not doing is way less important than what Christ has done for us and will continue to do until we see him face to face. He is causing us, he is causing us to take possession of what God has sworn to us. He is doing all that. Here are five things to take away from this message that are on your handout. Why? To save you from furiously scribbling down what I'm about to say. Now I'm going to explain them. I just gave you the one-liners, but I'm going, to, I'm going to explain them. I left you a little bit of room to write that. All your sins are forgiven. All of them. All of them. Past, present, future, all of them. They're all forgiven. Not in whole, right? Not, not in part, but in whole. God will not destroy you because Christ is your constant intercessor. <laughs> God will not destroy you because Christ is your constant intercessor. He's always there on the mount with God interceding on your behalf, just as Moses was on the mount. God will continue to call you his own, his treasured possession, for Christ's sake. He will not let you go. Oh, love that will not let me go. Number two, God renews his covenant with you daily by the cross. So pick up your cross daily and follow Christ. 
I think that's a commandment somewhere. Pick up your cross daily and follow Christ because God renews his covenant with you daily by the cross. It doesn't matter how frustrated or angry or disappointed you become with your fellow believers as Moses was with his fellow Israelites. All of us get on each other's nerves. That's just a fact of life. And we love each other anyway, despite that, because of Christ. In fact, we love one another because of Christ. doesn't matter how frustrated you become with yourself. It doesn't matter that you've shattered the covenant in your despair. Any of you done that? I've had enough of this stuff. Shattered the covenant in your despair. God said, like Moses, can't believe you people. Want no part of you anymore. And yet, and yet, God says to you, as he said to Moses, let's start again. Moses, cut up another couple of, of, of stones. Let's start again. Let's start again. We'll pick up the pieces together and renew our covenant vows just as they were before. I'm not going to change those covenant vows just because you have stumbled and fallen. Why do you think I sent my son? Do you think I didn't know you'd stumble and fall? Of course I did. That's why I sent him. To pick you up. To dust you off. To make you whole. We'll pick up the pieces together and renew our covenant vows just as they were before. Do yourselves a favor. Memorize Proverbs 18.10. We actually sang a, a, a play on it this morning. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Number three, God will preserve his covenant with you. He has put it in a safe place, in the eternal ark of the covenant, a treasure chest, covered with the mercy seat. And this safe place is Christ himself who sits on that mercy seat. He sits there on your behalf, showering you with grace and with mercy. He is your prophet. He's your priest. He's your king. How long? Forever. There you go. Number four, God journeys with you every place you go. God journeys with you every place you go. There's no place you can go where God isn't there with you. No place. In the doldrums? Yes. In the best moments of my life? Yes! He's celebrating with you. He's rejoicing with you. He's comforting you when you're depressed and down and feel abandoned. He is ever present with you. You can never be abandoned by him because that was his promise to you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Others may, not me. Christ is always with you wherever you are. This safe place is Christ himself. He is your prophet, priest, and king. God journeys with you every place you go. It will never be a desert for you. Wherever you go, it will never be a desert for you as it was for the Jews. Never be a desert for you. But a better country. That's what it says in Hebrews, right? A better country. A land where brooks of living water flow. Wasn't that Christ promised to the woman at the well? And therefore, go in peace wherever you go. Go in peace wherever you go. Why? Because he is everything to you. He's with you everywhere you go. What more do you need? When we take the communion, what's the bread for? I am your sufficiency. Feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. Go ahead, break it up as many times as you want. How many left? 12 baskets full. <laughs> so I served all them and there was stuff left over. Yeah, sufficient? You betcha. Okay, so he is our sufficiency. Mellow out. Relax. Go in peace. Number five, the Lord has set you apart. 
as he set Levi apart in his day. You are to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord in your heart. And what else? Read these verses. Read these verses. Take them to heart from here in Deuteronomy. And to stand before the Lord to minister to him and to bless in his name. Not to be blessed by his name. You are that. Okay, but it's to bless others in his name. That's what you're taking with you. That's what you do when you give the gospel. I'm blessing you in the name of my Lord Jesus Christ. I have a message for you from the creator of the universe to you that you might have salvation, that you might live forever in him, that you might have peace, that you might have contentment, you might have fulfillment. At last, all the things you've been searching for in this world and can't find, he has for you. And we bless them with the gospel. For the Lord, the Lord is your inheritance. May you take these lessons to heart so you may possess the land that the Lord your God has promised to you and to your descendants after you. Let's pray. Lord God, you are our inheritance. You are everything we need, everything we want. You are the fulfillment of all of our joys. You are our comfort in ages and times of despair. You are our light in the darkness of the night. Lord God, we pray that you might be with us this day because you promised to be with us this day. May you be among us this day. May you stay with us, never forsaking us. And may we, as we walk through all these dark places of this world, remember there is no place our footsteps that you are not with us. Let us rest in that. Let us find our peace in Christ, who has given us peace with you, our Heavenly Father. Amen.